0: I remember coming across this cartoon by Calvin and Hobbes. Some of you guys love Calvin and Hobbes. And there's this one scene where they are involved making snowmen. And Hobbes looks at the snowman and says, the snowman doesn't look very happy. And Calvin says, he's not. He knows it's just a matter of time before he melts. The sun ignores his entreaties. He feels his existence is meaningless. Is it? Asks Hobbes. Calvin says, nope. He's about to buy a big screen TV. (laughs) I love that because Calvin and Hobbes, if you're a fan of that cartoon strip, know that they like to wax eloquent about life and it often exposes some silliness about our own lives as well. And you and I are tempted to think that just the next big upgrade, just to get this one more thing, is going to be what really makes us happy. And make no mistake about it, it's a lot of fun sometimes to get those upgrades and get those new devices, but we're in a culture that constantly bombards us with the message that you need this to be happy. In fact, this week I came across this infographic by the Applied Psychology Department of USC, University of Southern California, and they said back in the 1970s, for those of us who were around back then, we were exposed to an average of 500 commercials or advertisements a day. Now we are exposed to some 5,000 per day, which is just absolutely mind-boggling. But you think about all the media that we consume and the web pages we click on and all the advertisements that are there. uh, We can begin to understand how we are constantly exposed to that. In fact, this uh, infographic says that there are about 5.3 trillion ads on the Internet at any one given time. I don't know how they know that, but... That's what they're promoting their department on and wanting people to come and learn how to advertise better. But make no mistake about it. The message is subtle, but it's there and it's powerful. More stuff will make you more happy. And many times we begin to subconsciously buy into that. And we don't have to think about it. We just see something and go, oh, man, I want that. And we dive in and we think that will make us happy. Until someone like Leonardo DiCaprio comes along and tells us it's not going to. I remember in 2016, he made headlines around the world. He said, wealth and success don't make you happy. I don't know about you, but I'd be like, let's trade bank accounts. I want to give that a try and see if I can't. But there's that subtle thought it's almost a panic when someone says something like this who has a lot more wealth and a lot more success than we do, and they say, you know what? Happiness is not found there. I don't know if DiCaprio knows it or not, but he's actually echoing something that Jesus talked about some 2,000 years ago. Jesus himself taught us that wealth, success, that's not where it's found. And so we've been looking at that over the last couple of weeks. And we're going to call our study today, Where Your Treasure Is. And we're going to dial in on just a, a few particular verses that are set within a particular context. I'm going to remind us of that context in just a moment. But let's just come and, and pray before the Lord and ask him to teach us. And let me just give you a heads up. Jesus is going to make us a bit uncomfortable today. <laughs> he, he's not going to shy back from challenging us. To go deeper in our discipleship and, and following Him. And so He's gonna talk about where our treasure is. So let's, let's just know that that's what He's gonna talk about. And let's come before the Lord and, and ask Him to work in us that which is pleasing in His sight this day. Let's pray. Lord, you know well how constantly we are bombarded with the message that more stuff will make us more happy. And you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to do among other things, getting this thought before us, that no, that is not true. More things do not mean more happiness. More wealth, more success does not mean more happiness. And instead, he points us in a different direction. Lord, would you soften our hearts this day to hear what Jesus wants us to hear, to receive the challenge to live as he wants us to live, And meet us this day and give us your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, let me set the context up for us real fast. Jesus had been teaching the multitudes and someone interrupted him and said, Jesus, would you settle the dispute that I have with my brother over the inheritance? Tell him to divide the inheritance with me. And so Jesus uses this as a teaching point and he says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed for life does not consist And the abundance of possessions. Jesus wants us to know that our soul is more important than our stuff. So he tells us to watch out. And this actually launches launches Jesus into a parable. And you'll remember if you were with us, the parable of the rich fool. He talked about how this rich, wealthy landowner had a bumper crop. And it was just coming in like crazy. And he didn't know what to do with all this surplus. And so he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns and my storehouses. And I'm going to build bigger ones so I can put it all away and say to myself, chill out. Take it easy. Relax. You got it made in the shade for years to come. And Jesus says, God comes to that man in that moment and says to him, you fool today your life will be required of you and what then will become of everything that you've accumulated. And then Jesus ends that parable with this statement. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is meant to be a warning from Jesus, to to sober us up. And so he uses that phrase, rich toward God. What does that mean? Well, then Jesus then begins to unpack it, and he tells his disciples these words, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. We looked at this last week in that study about life and anxiety in the presence of God. And He says, I don't want you to worry about what everyone else worries about. Instead, this is what I want you dialed in on. Instead, seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. So that's the context of where we're going today. And this is what Jesus says next in verse 32. He says, fear not, little flock. As he pulls his disciples around to them, tells them he wants them to live radically and generously, to trust in God, to seek his kingdom, and God will take care of you. He says, fear not, little flock. And then he gives the reason for. Here's the connection. This is why Jesus thinks they should not be afraid to live like he's calling them to live. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you. And before we see what God wants to give, let's just think about what he's saying here. Don't fear, because it's God's good pleasure. It's not simply God's pleasure, but it's God's good pleasure, something that gives him deep joy. Something that just gets his energy going because he's so excited to give this to us. What is that? Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, how do you respond emotionally when Jesus says this? I think for many of us, this gif of this confused girl kind of hits home. Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And we're like, I feel like this should be hitting me more than it does. Why is this such good news, Jesus? Well, remember, Jesus talked about the kingdom over and over again. In fact, he couldn't stop talking about it. This was the focus of his ministry. In fact, when we open the Gospel of Mark... The first chapter, this is how he introduces Jesus to us. He says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. That word gospel meaning good news. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus loved talking about the kingdom. This was the good news that he wanted to bring. Jeremy Treat in his book, Seek First, which I commend to you often, said this in one place. When Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, he was not simply discussing a doctrine. He was evoking an entire story. It's the story of God making his broken creation into a beautiful kingdom. And so when we think about Jesus talking about the kingdom and why he thinks his disciples should be excited about it, it's immersing us in a story. And I show this graphic to you oftentimes because I want us to live in this story. The kingdom is a story about God's good creation, which he established our first primal parents as kings and queens over creation to to spread the kingdom of God over the face of the world. And that kingdom was all about God's shalom, his his peace. It's it's an idea of flourishing for us in this planet. But with the story, humanity rebels against God and God sends his son Jesus to redeem us from the curse of living by ourselves, and and to bring about the kingdom of God. And so that coming kingdom that Jesus is excited about, that he wants to, to talk about, that he thinks his disciples should get pumped about, is that coming kingdom in which God restores this world to its place of flourishing. Jesus called it the renewal of all things. The scriptures call it the new heavens and new earth. Jeremy Treat, once again, is helpful. He says, salvation is aimed at recovering Eden and the Edenic vision of God's reign over all the earth. The kingdom is about God's reign over every nook and cranny of this planet. So that's what Jesus is talking about here when he says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus thinks this should hit home for us, that we should be excited about. Now I asked my daughter Miranda if I can share this illustration. There's one year at Christmas when, those of you who know my daughter Miranda, she gets excited and she's really embarrassed right now, but she, she told me I could talk about this. She gets really excited at gift giving time. And one year at Christmas, my oldest son Justin was opening a present and she just couldn't contain it. He started opening the box and he looked up at her and a look of surprise and she's like, What is it? And my son Justin said, It's a box. And she's like, What color is it? <laughs> And she just, her excitement could hardly be contained. And then there was that time when she got to open her present, and she just went crazy. I I think I showed this graphic to you guys a couple years ago. She just was so delighted. Giving my daughter presents is the easiest thing in the world because you could just give her, um, I don't know, a dog bone for a dog, and she would be be pumped about it. And you see my son there, Justin, he's like closing his ears because of the volume of squeal coming out of my daughter, and she just went crazy. I don't, I mean, it's just easy. I think when Jesus tells us to not fear because it is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom, he's thinking we should have that kind of reaction to it. If we understood what Jesus understood and saw what Jesus saw, that God wants to give us this gift, it would drive us absolutely crazy with delight. And so Jesus gives them that piece of advice that, it's not advice. It's, it's a declaration of, of joy in the Father's good pleasure. And so something that he's going to say next is going to logically flow from this. What Jesus says next in verse 33 is this. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. I don't know about you, but I think someone might be thinking, um, Jesus, that's not exactly what I thought you were going to say next. In fact, this makes me extremely uncomfortable. What do you mean, sell my possessions and give to the needy? Well, I read some commentaries. See if I could get some insight on that. I looked at this in the original language in Greek. And so when Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy, he means to these disciples, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Now, mind you, these are people who already left everything to follow Jesus. Jesus himself is a poor traveling uh, preacher proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And these people have left everything to follow him, so they're they're not carrying around tons of possessions. But he's calling them deeper into trust in God, this God who delights in giving them the kingdom. So he says to them, basically, I want you to divest yourself more. And invest what you get from that divesting more. And someone says this, I know what you're doing, Pastor. You just want more people to give more money to your church so you can enrich yourself. <laughs> and if you were to think that, I wouldn't blame you. There's so many headlines these days of preachers who wearing $1,000 sneakers and fly around in private jets and promise you God's blessings if you just give more money to them. Let me assure you, that's not what I'm after today. And the reason why is because Jesus doesn't say, sell your possessions and give them to the preacher. (laughs) What does he say here? Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Whenever we see those words, the needy, if we've been in tune with what the scriptures have said, from the times of the Old Testament to the times of Jesus, we would know that God's heart is for the vulnerable. And we've talked about how before there are certain categories in Scripture, including the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor, that God says over and over again has his heart, that he is for them. And he warns over and over again not to oppress. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Uh, First of all, from the prophets in the book of Zechariah. Here the prophet says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. The book of Jeremiah, when the people of of God in the Old Testament just became increasingly more and more insane, inventing new ways of doing evil, instead of being a, a light to the nations, They were an example to the nations about the worst of humanity. And God raised up this prophet Jeremiah who said to them, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the immigrant, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Jeremiah said in another place, they do not, I'm sorry, they know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge with justice I'm sorry, they judge not with justice, the cause of the fatherless, to make it prosper, prosper. and they do not defend the rights of the needy. Over and over again, in the times before Christ, God called these people, who he wanted to be alike to the nations, to not oppress the most needy, but rather to, to use their lives to advocate for them, to help them out. And who can forget the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus taught, perhaps his most famous story. He opened it up with two religious leaders of the day, a priest and a Levite, who saw this man who had been robbed and laying there half dead. And instead of helping them, him out, they walked by on the other side. I'm sure they had some really good excuses. But Jesus said a Samaritan When he saw this man had compassion on him and he went to him and bandaged his wounds and put him on his own animal and carried him to an inn and and told the innkeeper to, to take care of this man and gave him money to do so. And he said, if you have any more expenses, just hang on to the receipts. And when I get back, I will reimburse you for that. And Jesus says, this is what it means to love. And he highlights someone who loves the needy. That illustration is simply a beautiful expression of what uh, was said in the book of Proverbs, chapter 14. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Did you get that, my friends? Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. And then there's that one place where Jesus talked about when you go to visit those in prison or to clothe those who are naked or to feed the hungry or to give a drink to someone who is thirsty. He says, whenever you did it for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it for me. In other words, Jesus says his family are the needy. And if we do that for him, minister to them, Jesus takes it very personally. He says, you're doing it for me. So, back to the passage we're looking at there. When Jesus says to his disciples, sell your possessions and give to the needy. What he's trying to do, remember the stream of thought, he's trying to move them from the selfish mindset of the rich fool to the selfless mindset that is rich toward God. Jesus is defining what it means to be rich toward God. And so it makes perfect sense for Jesus to say, as he did earlier in this stream of thought, this section of teaching, if life does not consist, and the abundance of possessions, then sell your possessions and give to the needy. He goes on and says to them, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. And with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. What's Jesus saying here? <laughs> He's saying, I want you to build wealth but in the right place. I want you to provide for yourself money bags. Money bags are what? the wallets and purses of the day. It's just little cloth things. They had a little rope around it they put inside their tunic. That's where they put their coins. And Jesus says, I want you to provide money bags that do not grow old. That is, that cannot wear out. And treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So Jesus says, aim to build treasure in heaven, in the coming kingdom. I love what David Gooding said in his commentary on Luke. I found it very helpful. He said, The Christian should aim to have as much endurable treasure as he can. That means, however, transferring as much as he can to the heavens, where it is safe from loss, devaluation, robbery, or decay. And that, in turn, means giving as much as he can now to the poor. It's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? I love what A.W. Tozer said. He said, any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. Remember how Jesus said you give to him? When you take care of the needy. When you take care of the needy, we can turn temporal possessions into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is touched with immortality. I love that phrase. And then Jesus concludes this little paragraph we're looking at with this thought. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The rich fool had his treasure right here for right now. And Jesus is trying to move his disciples into a thinking where they can put their treasures into the heavens where it is secured by God and rewarded by God. Again, David Gooding in his commentary is helpful. He says, store up your treasure on earth and it will inevitably pull your heart in the direction of earth. Store it in heaven and it will pull your heart and with it your goals, ambitions, and longings toward heaven. So let's bottom line it, just using that line from Jesus where your treasure is, there your heart is. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. My friends, can you imagine Jesus talking to you directly this morning and saying to you, where your treasure is, there your heart is? What is he wanting you to see this morning? Randy Alcorn, who's written on this issue, said, "As surely as the compass needle follows north, your heart will follow your treasure." So let me just give us a a few points of application this morning, and I have to start with this point of application. (laughs) Let's root ourselves in God's grace, not in guilt. I know when you hear these words, you're tempted to go, "Oh man, I'm not giving to the poor as I ought," and. And the thought is, I just need to rectify that. And we're acting out of guilt. I know when I was giving myself to this study this week, that was my reaction. Oh, I can do more. But I was motivated by guilt. And so what does it mean to root ourselves in God's grace and not in guilt? You see, if we're just rooting ourselves in guilt, we, we might make a, a temporary change this week. We might decide to, to give to the poor the needy this week, but... After that, our conscience becomes kind of clear for a little bit, and we're we're good. But if we were to root ourselves in God's grace, we're rooting ourselves in the gospel story of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said to them these words. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And my friends, this this verse should not be taken out of the context in which it is given. The Apostle Paul knows that the wealth that Jesus wants to give to you and me is in his kingdom. This is not an excuse to name it and claim it. To say that God wants me to be as wealthy as I can right now so I can be blessed and just use it for myself. No. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Listen to what Tim Keller says, his pastor and author of the book Counterfeit Gods. He said, When you see him dying to make you his treasure, that will make him yours. Money will cease to be the currency of your significance and security, and you will want to bless others with what you have. To the degree that you grasp the gospel, Money will have no dominion over you. Think on his costly grace, how he poured out his wealth for you. Let's take that word money out and use that word possessions that Jesus used for his disciples. When you see him dying to make you his treasure, that will make him yours. Possessions will cease to be the currency of your significance and security. And you will want to bless others with your possessions. To the degree that you grasp the gospel, possessions will have no dominion over you. Think on his costly grace, how he poured out his wealth for you. And so what Jesus would say and what the Apostle Paul would say and what here Tim Keller says is that when we understand God's lavish grace given to us. That should have an effect on our lives. Again, Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, How the Gospel Makes Us Just, said this, When justice for the poor is connected, not to guilt, but to grace and to the gospel, this pushes the button down deep in believers' souls, and they begin to wake up. My friends, I want to ask you the question, has that button been pushed down deep in your soul? Will you understand how God has blessed you in order to be a blessing? And you begin to see your life as a way in which you can then invest in the most needy in this world. So that's the first point of application, my friends. Let's root ourselves in God's grace, not in guilt. Here's the second one. Let's reevaluate our money, our wealth, and our possessions in light of the coming kingdom of God. I need to do this, and you need to do this. I told my wife we need to sit down and we need to to do one of those audits again where we kind of think through our money and our possessions, the wealth God has entrusted to us. Because here's the thing, everything under heaven belongs to me, says God in the book of Job. We tend to think, all right, I'm going to give like 5% or 10% away and the, the other 90% is mine. But God says, no, it, actually it all belongs to me. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he owns every penny in your bank account. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God has entrusted us with resources that belong to him? That he intends for us to use, not only to to live and to get by, but to give away to the most needy. Randy Alcorn, who I mentioned a while ago, said that he has a card that is inside his wallet. On one side of the card it says, God owns every treasure. I'm his investment manager. And on the other side of the card it says, God wants me to use earthly treasures to store up heavenly treasures. And he says he puts that card in his wallet so that when he reaches for money to make a purchase, he thinks about how that money is first of all a gift to God, from God to him. And it's meant to be used in certain ways. The Apostle Paul, writing to his young protege in the faith, Timothy, who was entrusted with leading churches, told Timothy to say this As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich. In good works to be generous and ready to share thus storing up for themselves treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life here Paul says to Timothy I want you to to tell these young communities of Jesus followers those who have resources not to put their trust in them but rather to divest and invest in the right places. So my friends, I need to ask a question. I'm going to apologize ahead of time. (laughs) Because it's one of those questions that we really don't want to be asked. But it came to my attention as I was preparing this. And the Lord was asking me this question before he's now asking you. You ready? (laughs) Here's the question. What if God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving? That's uh, Randy Alcorn asked this question, so it's coming from him. (laughs) But what if God prospers you and me? Not so much that we can raise our standard of living as much as to raise our standard of giving. Christopher Wright, in his book about knowing God in the Old Testament, said this, I have to ask myself then, what is there in my life that shows any love for and practical commitment to the poor and the needy? Whatever else I do, can I see that God's concern for the weak and the poor is reflected at all? In my praying, thinking, giving, and doing. The Apostle John said, if anyone has the world's goods, I think that would apply to all of us. (laughs) If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love let us not love in word and, or talk, but in deed and in truth. As I was thinking about this verse in preparation, I remember at times in my life where I closed my heart against people who were in need. And as we prayed early in the service, God, remember not the, the sins of my youth. I found myself just lamenting, How how easy it is for me to close my heart to those in need, but to open my heart to me. Lord, have mercy. So here's the first point of application. Let's root ourselves in God's grace, not in guilt. The second point of application was let's reevaluate our money, our wealth, and our possessions in light of the coming kingdom of God. And here's the third and final point of application. Let's excel in the gift of giving. The Apostle Paul, once again, directing this group of believers living in this ancient city of Corinth, he's he's trying to raise money for believers in Jerusalem who are suffering from a famine. And they lived in Corinth, and they were not suffering from that. And so he's trying to raise funds to give to people in dire straits and, and desperate needs. And he says to them, Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. He's saying, in other words, you guys are nailing it. You're excelling in in so many ways as you seek to follow Jesus. But see to it especially... See to it also that you excel in the gift, this grace of giving. And so the question then becomes for us, how can I put my possessions to work for the interest of God's kingdom? How can I excel in the grace of giving? If Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to rejoice because it's your father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. And Jesus thinks that in light of that, we should be willing to get rid of some stuff and some of our wealth. In other words, to make ourselves more poor so that others can have a bit more. Then it makes sense for us to ask the question today. How can I put my possessions to work for the interest of God's kingdom? How can I excel in the grace of giving? Some of you know who John Wesley was. Um, He was a young man and a follower of Jesus and He, because of his ministry, helped establish churches, and they became known as the Methodist churches. Well, one day, when he was a student at Oxford, there was a knock on his door, and there was a young, impoverished woman there, standing in the cold, asking if he had anything that he could give to her. And he was ashamed because he just had a couple pennies really to give to her. He had just went on a spending spree to, to deck up his house. And as he sent her away, empty-handed, he became convicted. And he resolved to always set aside money to be able to give. And 1731, according to records that we have from his life, he made 30 pounds that year. And his expenses were 28. And so he gave two pounds away to the needy. The next year, his income doubled to 60 pounds. His expenses, he kept at the same. He lived on 28 of that. And so then he gave away 32 pounds. The following year, he made 90 pounds. Continued to live on 28 and gave away 62 pounds. The following year, God blessed him again. And his income was 120 pounds. But he continued to live on 28. And he gave away 92 pounds. In fact, one year, if we translate this into our American money instead of pounds, I don't even know what pounds are. I know you guys do. <laughs> one year, his royalties gave him an income of a, the equivalent of $160,000. And yet he lived on 20000 giving the rest away. What's the point? The point, my friends is that we need to think about the money and wealth and possessions that we've been entrusted with and how we might be able to use them for the interests of Jesus. And specifically, Jesus says he's interested in the needy. He's interested in the needy in our community. And he's interested in the needy around the world. And so how might we begin to think about how we could live on less how we might be able to divest ourselves of some things in order that we can help others live on a little bit more. The Apostle Paul that I mentioned a while ago is talking about excelling in the grace of giving also said this to those same Christians. He said, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. As he comes to them saying, hey, let's raise some money to give to those who are suffering for for need in this famine. Just determine in your heart to give and to give generously. But I'm not wanting you to do it reluctantly. And I don't want you to do it as if you're feeling uh, compelled to do so or under compulsion, but, but just remember, God loves a cheerful giver. And then he goes on and says this. And God is able to... Listen, listen to this. This kind of blew my mind when I saw this because I'd read this passage a bunch of times and it didn't register until this week when I saw it again. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written... They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. And then he said this, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So how about this, my friends? How about making a grace-giving fund devoted to the poor? I'm not asking you about giving to the church. I'm asking, would you take inventory of your life and to think about how you can set aside some of your possessions, some of your wealth, some of your money, and give it directly to the poor or to organizations helping out the poor? I think that would be a good application of what Jesus is getting at in the life of his disciples in this passage. Some of you are doing this already. Let me encourage you. You're doing exactly what Jesus wants you to do. I know some of you give generously. And let me just say, you're nailing it. Let's do so more and more. But maybe for some of us, this is a wake-up call. And we realize, you know what? I have been thinking about my money, my wealth, and my possessions as my own to be given to me just to make my life more easy. Let me encourage you. To begin thinking about, in light of the gospel of Jesus, how you might become the grace of Jesus to someone in need. I remember not too long ago I was talking with a college student who has no money, who is desperately poor, about an opportunity through an organization in Austin. At just $4 a month to be able to supply a five-gallon bottle of clean, fresh water to people on the southern border, who are knocking on the door, who've been in camps waiting for months to seek entrance to the United States. And this young, poor college student said to me, $4? That's a no-brainer. My friends, Jesus says he wants us to to take care of the needy. And I wonder if we might say, of course, that's a no-brainer. Friends, may God work in us, in you and in me, that which is pleasing in His sight.